So you'll remember that you know we last saw the Lord's deliverance from the Assyrians. And then when you come to chapter 38 and it says, In those days Hezekiah was sick and near death. It's really important to understand that most of the writings of the prophets are not in chronological order. The scripture, by and large, is in chronological order. There are some fair elements that are not, but especially the chapters of the prophets, they, they wrote individual prophecies. And so, you know, those prophecies were kept and compiled, but as far as their order, it's very out of order. So when we're reading in those days, it isn't the days when the Lord delivered them from the Assyrians. This is probably written quite a bit before that. You just have to take it uh, as a description of the days when Hezekiah was sick and near death. So this description sort of has a standalone uh, feeling and understanding. And uh, both Chronicles and uh, Kings give us a, a slightly better idea of you know where these occurrences were in the reign and in the life of Hezekiah. I'll remind us that Hezekiah is an especially good king. Now, there's a revival that has happened in his own heart and he's been drawn very close uh, to the Lord personally. And he has undertaken a massive uh, reformation. And, you know, if, you, if you've never really thought about that word, the reformation of the spiritual uh, ideology and worship of the people of uh, particularly Judah. So, um, you know, the revival that's happened in his own heart as a king and the authority that he bears He's now presenting that and performing that in his nation. But the people, um, while they're cooperative and while they are enjoying the uh, reformation that's taking place, um, it's not something that's happening in their own hearts. It isn't a thing that um, you know, has it happened in their own heart and ignited and uh, you know, produced what we would call revival you know, or, or, you know, awakening in the community and the nation. They've, they've reformed. Uh, we talked about how they've gotten rid of the high places, um, uh, which were um, not necessarily idolatrous, uh, but certainly rebellious because God had commanded them to come to Judah and worship him there in the temple. And instead, uh, you know, all of the people are sort of making up their own mind and having their own altar and worship of God in their own place and in their own way. And God is saying, no, you know, you need to do as I've commanded and come to Jerusalem and worship in the temple. So Hezekiah has brought about a great reform. And in the midst of that, in those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. It says, continuing in verse 1, And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Isaiah's bedside manner is not especially fine-tuned. You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, while there's a truth to this, um, it's really very blunt. And um, it's 
I, you know, I can only imagine how difficult it is uh, to take this sort of uh, message. Um, you know, when it says in, in verse 2, then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord. The idea is he was so overwhelmed with the message and with the circumstances that he just, you know, isolates himself as much as he can, probably in a room full of people. Um, you know, certainly there are a few there, if not many, you know, attending physician, heads of state, if he's sick to the point of death and they've summoned Isaiah, then, you know, people are lingering to care for his every need and, and also to make sure that if he is going to pass from the scene, that the authority of the throne passes rightfully to who it belongs. This is, you know, this is a man of, of tremendous influence within at least Judah. So he turns his face to the wall. The idea of just, you know, going into his own prayer closet, isolating himself in prayer and pouring out his heart. Uh, to the Lord, and, and it's it's complaint, and it's it's heartbreak and regret all at the same time. So verse 3, his prayer, and said, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Um, he's, you know, imploring the Lord on uh, the idea of, you know, I have been good and I have done right and I am a king of reform. I've brought the people's hearts back to where they belong. You know, in his mind, this is an injustice. And, you know, we in the New Testament sense of things, especially when we know the outcome, look at this like, you know, this, this is sort of out of sync with our doctrine. And in fact, it is because, you know, we don't receive uh, goodness and blessing and healing and things of that nature from the Lord based upon our goodness. We, we receive them based upon the goodness of Christ. You know, um, when the book of James is telling us, you know, to, if we're sick to go before the elders, be anointed with oil, uh, prayed over, and, you know, the prayers will make that one well, um, you know, and his sins will be forgiven. It's the idea of imploring the Lord on his credentials, not our credentials. So our New Testament sense of things is very different than Hezekiah's Old Testament sense of things, because in the Old Testament sense of things, this is the agreement with God. You do good, you obey me, you, you know, you don't live in rebellion against me and I'll bless you and I'll bless your crops. I'll bless your health. I'll bless your families. So that sense of things is in place here. And, and we shouldn't begrudge the fact that he's praying this way, nor should we try to then apply it to the New Testament sense of things. You know, this, this is a, an Old Testament relationship between a man and God under that old covenant and he's just saying i've done everything right you know i'm a reformer as far as the king goes how in the world could it be that you're just suddenly coming with the prophet to tell me i'm gonna die that makes no sense 
at all. Now in verse 4, it says, And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, saying, Go and tell Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, surely I will add to your days 15 years. Now, a few things to uh, examine and think about. Uh, the, you know, the naysayers, the critics, immediately jump in and say, aha, you know, Isaiah was wrong. He, he, he first tells Hezekiah, you're going to die. And now he tells Hezekiah, you're going to live. So he's, you know, prophesied something that's false. Therefore, he's a false prophet, so we shouldn't listen to him. Well, guess what? Uh, he was right on both accounts. I mean, you, if you ever want to prophesy with 100% accuracy and make sure you're never wrong, uh, tell someone they should set their house in order because they're going to die. Because 10 out of 10 people die, right? I mean, the message is true to every human being. Within this, it causes Hezekiah to turn to the Lord in a way he never has before. Secondly, the Lord's prerogative. Um, you know, I, I there's a great mercy in knowing uh, when you're going to die. You know, you think about the people who maybe you even knew who their walk with the Lord was sort of unsure. They made professions of faith, but then didn't live by that faith, and then were taken from this world, and then everyone's left wondering, you know, are they with the Lord, or maybe they're not? I mean, how sincere was their faith? How sincere was their profession? You know, to what point are we strictly relying upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ versus the conduct of the person? You know, it gets muddied up. When someone makes professions of faith and just lives according to that faith, then when they pass away, everybody goes, there, I don't have any questions. It's a very clean and cut situation. I mean, I think it is anyway if you make professions of faith in Jesus Christ, but I've also seen people that make professions of Jesus Christ and then live completely contradictory to it. Okay, When someone knows, I have a number of days left, they tend to walk in a very strict way. There's a mercy to that. You know, there, there's a graciousness to that. I, I, I apply that to capital punishment. You know, uh, seriously, in my mind, you know, I think it's very gracious. Someone has committed a capital crime that's worthy of death, and you tell them, hey, on this date, you're going to meet your maker. That gives that person who's absolutely undeserving of ever being in the presence of the Lord time to get right with the Lord so that they can be forgiven and live in an eternity in the presence of the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. You know, um, it was, uh, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer. What a psychopath. You know, I, I mean, homosexual, homicidal cannibal. And uh, a Christian couple uh, gained access and visitation to him and began sharing the gospel with him. He surrendered his life to Christ. I don't take anything away from the families that lost, lost their loved ones at his hands. I mean, 
What an unthinkable injustice. That, that man was an animal. None of us deserve salvation. Jeffrey Dahmer accepted Jesus Christ's salvation. He did a series of interviews, and in them he talked at length about how his whole sinfulness and perversion began with finding pornography that his neighbor kept throwing away in the trash. And once he discovered it was there, he regularly checked for it and started building for himself a collection which grew into an insatiable appetite as a child until by the time he was an adult, he was a monster. And he wanted to share that message with the world, how that perversion had destroyed his heart and mind and turned him, helped turn him into what he was and how he had received Jesus Christ's forgiveness and was preparing to go spend an eternity in the presence of the Lord. Can you think of a message that Satan would hate any more than that? You know, the confession that this is how I became a monster and also the evidence that this is how I found forgiveness from my maker and I'm ready to go pay the cost for my sin and my crimes and be in the presence of the Lord. And in my opinion, that's why Satan inspired one of his cellmates to beat him to death with a broomstick just hours before the interview where he shared that with before he got the opportunity to share that with the world. The graciousness of Christ of knowing your day, knowing when you're going to be in the presence of the Lord to set things in order. As Isaiah said, set your house in order. Whatever was lacking in Hezekiah's life, he had opportunity to set that in order. And now the Lord has said, I'm going to add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city from the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. And this is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing which he has spoken. Behold, I will bring the shadow of the sundial, which has gone down with the sun, on the sundial of as 10 degrees backwards, so the sun returned 10 degrees on the dial by which it had gone down. Now, it's, it's very plain, very simple. Okay? I'll discuss a few elements that the critics want to freak out about, but it's very simple. The, the light that was falling upon the sundial that was fixed in place in uh, Hezekiah's life, by which they told the hour of the day, had already passed and now went back 10 degrees. Simple as that. How did that occur? Well, we've got no idea. Okay. Just that the sun went back 10 degrees. I, was there a servant in the house who was adjusting mirrors? You know what I'm saying? And, you know pitched the sunlight upon it in a specific way? Did the sun, you know, I'm, I'm giving you the absolute lamest possibility, or, you know, did the sun, the earth literally reverse in its rotation and pull, and the sun moved upon the dot? We've got no idea. No idea whatsoever. You know, have you, have you ever looked at your watch or the clock and thought it was a specific time? your heart's set on it being that time. And then you look back 
and you're like, oh my goodness, it's not even that time. You know, I thought it was one, and it's you know, it, ten minutes of one. I thought I, I was certain that it was already one o'clock. What was it? That sort of thing in his heart and mind. We've got no idea how it is that this ten degrees took place, other than it took place. You know, the critics want to focus on the fact that especially in the King James, it, it talks about how the sun went back. And they're like, no, no, see, the, the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about. The sun doesn't move at all. So if anything happened in regard to the astrological conditions, then it would have to be the earth. Therefore, God doesn't know what he's talking about. Because, okay, so let me just tell you, ask you this. Don't think, just say it in your mind. Uh, did the sun rise this morning? Okay, did the sun set this evening? Okay, you're wrong. Because the sun stays in the same place. You don't say when the sun comes up, oh, the earth turned this morning. You say the sun came up. The sun didn't come up. The sun's in the same place it ever was. We turn. It's just an expression. Okay? The critics always want to point out, I, I got no idea how this took place other than to tell you straight up, it took place. This man inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said, I'm going to do this, and this will be the sign for you to prove to you and give the evidence that the, the, you know, the sun on the dial is going to go back 10 degrees. And there's all kinds of ways that that could have taken place. It took place. It's a very simple thing that the Lord does in order to convince the man to show. Have you ever had circumstances where the Lord spoke to your heart and then gave you a confirmation? And then as you try to explain it to the people around you, how the Lord confirmed it to you, you can see the expression on their face where they're going, you are nuts. Okay? You've had the Lord confirm something to you. Hezekiah had the Lord confirm something to him. The world looks on at this expression and says, this is crazy, this is impossible, there has to be something, something wrong, something explained differently. We don't know. Other than, here's the proof that's in the pudding, the guy lives for 15 more years. That's a historic fact. Okay? I, look, oh, well, let's be the critics, okay? Let's play the devil's advocate. Isaiah was wrong. Uh, Hezekiah was wrong. All of this record is wrong. Well, guess what? 15 years after this moment in history, the man passed away. It's all accurate. You can't deny what's written here. It occurred for the man. The scripture is trustworthy. The Lord is trustworthy. The element that's always questionable is the human being, right? You hear something from the Lord in your heart and mind, very often what you have to do is set it aside and go, well, we'll see if that comes to pass. Hezekiah saw it come to pass. Now, to discuss another element of this, because Maybe you're looking at something in your own life and thinking, man, I need the Lord's intervention. If God can do this, 
I need God to turn the sundial back in my life. I need God to intervene. Pause for a moment. Three years after this prayer, three years after this transpires, there's a son born to Hezekiah. If he was going to pass away, Isaiah says your house needs to be put in order, you're leaving planet earth. He pleads on behalf of the Lord and God extends his life 15 years. Three years later, the son that is born to him is Manasseh. Manasseh is one of the most wicked kings that this nation ever sees. We could say, in the end, the nation would have been better off without Manasseh. Now, I have to go the other direction and disagree. His wickedness, perhaps it even exceeds Jeffrey Dahmer. He murdered his own children. Guy was a psychopath. He he was a very wicked man. You know, made his children pass through the fire of Molech. So, really wicked in the behaviors of the king. At the same time, he repents of his sin. And God forgives him and shows him grace. That's remarkable, right? So which side is it? Nation better off without it? Or how about the divine example that no matter how bad the circumstance get, God's willing to forgive Manasseh, willing to fix situations that in our mind, you know, we might judge and say the world's better off without any of that. The graciousness of Jesus Christ. The working of the Lord. What a wonderful thing. So here, you know, you see that Hezekiah is given 15 years and uh, the Lord is making these promises and giving him this sign. And then in verse 9, this is the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. So he'd been sick and now he's recovered. And we'll see how some of that transpires. Quite a prayer. I said in the prime of my life, which he's 39 years old, okay, um, when, when he's sick. And you can kind of look at it both directions. You know, he's not a kid. Um, he's lived, you know, a, poor, a good portion of his life, but he's also not very old at all. To think, you know, there I fulfilled my purposes. and Yeah. You know, 39 is a good old ripe age. That's that's a far cry. I mean, he's just, you know, basically getting going. So I said in the prime of my life, I shall go to the gates of Sheol. I, I am deprived of the remainder of my years. Now, for any of you that, you know, have another translation that says, you know, I shall go to the gates of hell, or if you know the term Sheol, as hell. Um, there are three terms in the Bible, and, and I want to define this before we move on because we've got this Old Testament sense of things going on here. You have three terms in the Bible regarding hell, and um, a couple of them don't imply hell the way that you and I might naturally think of the place of fire and torment. 
You have Sheol, and that is used in, in the ancient Greek tongue a lot. You'll find the old poets that refer to Sheol, and then you'll also uh, find the term Hades, and uh, or it's sometimes pronounced Hades. Um, so Hades and Sheol simply mean the place of the dead. So that ends up having a lot of different uh, descriptions. Uh, literally, the graveyard could be full of the righteous and the unrighteous. And you could say, and they would say, that that is Sheol. That is the place of the dead. It more means, uh, and it is significant and important for us to understand, it more means the uh, eternal place of existence of the dead. So one more time, that could be paradise or the place of torment. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're talking about hell. Then there is that term which has got a few different uh, Greek and Hebrew uh, uh, pronunciations, but Gehenna, which, you know, the, the, the dump outside Israel uh, was where they disposed of everything. Um, just to be graphic, uh, if the family dog died, they would throw the carcass in Gehenna. You would also throw, um, you know, all of your waste in there, your, you know, your, your uh, discarded items from your household. And so all of this gross decomposition that's, you know, taking place there uh, smelled horrible, attracted flies, you know, maggots and worms. It was a place of disgusting stench and disease, and no one wanted anything to do with it. Uh, they would light it on fire, pour fuel in there and light it on fire. And so it was constantly smoking, constantly smoldering, constantly stinking, decomposing, rotting, and Gehenna became the term for the hell of torment that we think of. So you, when you think of that place of torment, Gehenna, the dump, the burning, the decomposition, and the spiritual state of rot and decomposition and eternally condemned and separated from God, that's all one picture for uh, the readers and the writers of ancient texts and scripture. You know, you might even know Gehenna as the lake of fire. Now, hell, we're going to take a look at specifically, not just following all of my jumbled description here. Uh, hell, the place of torment, is someday going, and its occupants, going to receive the judgment of the Lord according to uh, the great white throne judgment in Revelation, and it is going to be gathered up and cast into the eternal place of existence in the lake of fire. So let's turn, keep your bookmark there, but let's go over to the book of Luke. We're going to look at an account that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 16, where uh, he talks specifically about hell and 
paradise and death. Luke 16, beginning at verse 19. It is not a parable, right? When Jesus uh, tells a parable or teaches a parable, he often says, um, you know, let me teach you a parable or uh, listen to this parable. And if he doesn't say it, then almost always the scripture says it. The author says it. Matthew says it. Whoever's writing says, and he taught them a parable. Another thing about parables is never are specific names used in them. They're, they're a generalized illustration, and that's all that's intended by them. So here, this is a real account that Jesus is giving us. Luke chapter 16, verse 19 says, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, so there's your specific name, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. What a pleasant thought. So it was that the beggar died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, the place of the dead, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. The rich man can see Abraham and Lazarus, and there they are in a place of paradise, and there is water there. Let him dip his finger in water and just touch my tongue. So he's in torment and flame, and he even says that here in the moment. It is the same location physically inside the earth, and they're able to communicate with one another. They're close enough to communicate, be it even if they have to shout very loudly, they're able to communicate back and forth across from one another. Follow how this transpires. Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, likewise Lazarus, evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. So it's a place of physical and emotional and spiritual comfort. But Right there, visible, is hell that is torment. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. So then a discussion goes on about whether they can go back to the land of living and share the message that there is a hell and a place of torment with the living and the answer is no, it's not possible, and um, you know no one would believe anyway if someone did return from the dead. The physical description of hell uh, recorded there and uh, how it's going to transpire that they will eventually uh, be um, you know uh, cast into the lake of fire. It's 
it's a, a really unfortunate thing that, uh, you know, the idea that so many people, you know, want to say that, oh, it's not as the Bible describes. That, um, you know, if, if you die, you're just going to be, uh, you know, like burned up and exist uh, no more. Um, and, uh, you know, there have been books published on the matter that uh, say as much. It's uh, it's unfortunate that, you know, people of such strong influence are able to convince people that hell is not a physical place and it's not a place of fire and torment. What uh, Hezekiah is describing is not the fiery torment we would think of. He's specifically saying back in Isaiah chapter 38, verse 10, in the prime of my life, I shall go to the gates of Sheol, the place of the dead. It's, it's not the idea that he's going to go to hell as as far as a place of torment. It's the idea that he's going to experience death and depart from this world. If we follow the logic of the scripture and what's being said, hell previous to Jesus Christ's death uh, was inside the earth, a place of fire and torment, and visible from that location was Abraham's bosom, a place of paradise. According to the scripture, Jesus descended into Abraham's bosom. None of the occupants of Abraham's bosom had ever heard the gospel message. They died in hopes of salvation, but they didn't know the source of salvation. Jesus being in hell, the place of the dead, doesn't mean the place of fire and torment. He descends into Sheol, he descends into Hades, the place of the dead, and preaches to those that are waiting for salvation. We just heard that uh, the rich man could see Abraham and Lazarus. If Jesus descended into Abraham's bosom, then seemingly the occupants of hell, the place of torment, would be able to see Jesus. I think that would make hell all the worse seeing the source of salvation arrive. You read, uh, I believe it's uh, Matthew uh, chapter 27, beginning on around verse 54. Uh, it talks about when Jesus was resurrected, uh, the graves in Jerusalem burst open and the dead in Christ were seen walking around inside Jerusalem. Then people say, okay, well, what happened to them? My personal opinion, and I do not mean the opinions of the Scripture that you should take as gospel and hold on to, I'm saying Will Cass's personal opinion is that according to what Peter says, Jesus descended into Abraham's bosom, the place of the dead, preached to them the gospel for three days. When he ascended out of hell back, or let's just say Abraham's bosom, when he ascended out of Abraham's bosom back to planet Earth, they came with him. All those who had been in Abraham's bosom waiting for salvation, ascended to the earth. But they don't have the opportunity to go to heaven yet because there's no access to heaven until Jesus Christ is taken 
his position at the right hand of the Father. So 40 days later when he ascends, my personal opinion is, they ascend with him. Now they're in paradise. So Abraham's bosom is emptied out. Think about what a torment that would be if you're in hell. That place used to be full. It's a place of paradise and running water. And now it's completely unoccupied. And we get to just look at it every day from hell. That would make it even worse. Hell has, you know, levels of hell. Yeah. Imagine being the tour guide who the newcomers to hell arrive and have to ask you, what's that place over there with the running water? That looks, why don't we just go over there? Can't go over there. There's a great gulf, but it used to be occupied. Used to be occupied? Yeah, they all left. When did they, when Jesus arrived? Amazing things to think about. So, biblically, realistically, in reality, hell exists. It's in the center of the earth. Anyone who dies that isn't in faith will go there. Someday they will all be resurrected to stand before the great white throne and be judged and then cast into Gehenna, the eternal place of fire and torment. Here, Hezekiah is simply talking about going to the place of the dead. I am deprived the remainder of my years. I said, I shall not see Yah. That's a shortened expression of Yahweh. God the Father, we might say, Jehovah, as it has been translated, I shall not see Yah, the Lord, in the land of the living. I shall observe man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My lifespan is gone, taken from me like a shepherd's tent. I have cut off my life like a weaver. I have, or He cuts me off from the loom. From the day until night, you make an end of me. You know, the idea of the sun rising and then the sun setting. I've run my full course from the day until the night. You've you know, made a course of me. You've, you've let me run my full pattern. You know, um, the weavers would tie and fix uh, their, um, um, their work into the loom. And then when it was done, they would cut it off the loom and you know, use it as a carpet or, you know, whatever um, it was designed for, but it would be cut off. So the completion, the, the finishing, I have considered until morning like a lion. So he breaks all my bones from day until night. You make an end of me, you know, the uh, um, severity of the message that he was going to die, like a crane or a swallow. So I chatter. And mourned like a dove. You know, this is perhaps, you know, when he turned toward the wall and began to pray and the illness that he was um, experiencing and the shock of uh, the message that had come from Isaiah that he was going to die. I mourned like a dove. My eyes fail from looking upward. I, oh, Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake me. You know, hold, hold me up is the idea, you know. Take up my cause and lift me up. Verse 15, what shall I say? He has both spoken to me and he himself has done it. I shall walk carefully all my years in the bitterness of my soul. O oh Lord, 
by these things men live and in all these things is the life of my spirit so you will restore me and make me live you know i'm going to be very serious about the remainder of my life now that i've faced death you know the fact that i came right to the brink and knew i had the word of the prophet directly from the lord that my days were done and uh, you know now that i've seen the numbering of my days and i know the certainty i'm going to live uh, in a steadfast way i'm going to live in a way that is upright and you know careful you know he says in bitterness the idea is you know that bitterness in my heart that i did experience is going to cause me to be very circumspect about my behavior because the lord has restored me indeed it was for my soul, my own peace, that I had great bitterness. But you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. That's a beautiful picture there. The idea of you know uh, the Lord is you know cast uh, anything that could be remembered as sinful behind him so that he can't see them anymore, can't look upon them. There's a telltale statement he makes at the beginning of 17. Uh, indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. I want you to remember that as we move forward and hear some other things about Hezekiah. He's not considering anyone else in the process. It's, it's a strange behavior for this man of God, that he's focused on self. And it, it plays out in a couple more ways as we move forward. For Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your truth. The idea is that their, their fate is sealed. It's an eternal thing. This is doctrine, Christian biblical doctrine that's established here. Uh, you know, those that say, you know, there's this idea of annihilation. Um, you know, they say that once you go to hell, you're just, um, you know, going to be destroyed. Uh, that you don't have to worry or be concerned about living in eternity in um, uh, torment. Um, you know, whether it's a million years or a thousand years or, or instantly, uh, when you enter hell, you're just going to be burned up and destroyed and exist no more that, that's not what the scripture says the scripture says we are eternal beings right now you know, people say that you know um you know we're gonna preach the gospel message to you so that you can have eternal life you already have eternal life you know the, the idea that you're going to live eternally everyone is going to live eternally we were created in the image of god the question is where do you end up living for eternity in God's presence or separated from God for all of eternity. You know, the idea of what Jesus is saying of eternal life rather than eternal death. You don't want to be ex experiencing that torment for the rest of your life. So th this statement that he's made that, you know, once you're there, there's no hope. Once you've entered eternity or entered, you know, Sheol, it doesn't matter which side of the fence you're on. Once you enter there, it's an eternal prospect. You're eternally in the presence of the Lord or you're eternally separated from him. The living, the living man, he shall praise you as I do this day. 
the Father shall make known the truth to the children. The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my song with stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. That redemption causes the singing, causes the joy, causes uh, the confession of salvation on his lips. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a lump of figs and apply it as a poultice to the boil. So now we know the source of his illness, some type of boil, and he shall recover, whether it's one boil or he has boils all over. Um, you know, the idea that the boil is his sickness and they're going to apply this poultice, um, this heated or um, boiled um, uh, apparatus that contains figs inside it and he shall recover. Hezekiah had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? So um, uh, the idea also that medicine is approved and necessary. Uh, you know, whatever medicinal this was, um, you know, I don't know if you want to like start going to the health food store and buying figs and making poultices or whatever, but you know, it, it, it's um, the sort of thing that uh, implies medical treatment was necessary for his circumstances. And, um, you know, there are those uh, within Christianity that act like seeking medical um, treatment is somehow ungodly or sinful. Nothing can be farther from the truth. You know, Jesus Christ himself said the sick need a physician. You know, people that say, well, you know, I just know that God has healed me and made me well. Great, that Praise God. Now go see a doctor. And they are like, why? They, you know, that's, that's like a faithless act. Go see your doctor and have him confirm that the Lord has healed you so you can witness to your doctor and then to the whole world that, number one, you were sick and now you've been healed. Okay, There's nothing in the scripture. I mean, if you hear it in your heart and you don't find it necessary to go see your doctor and know that the Lord has healed you, praise God. Absolutely wonderful. But really know this, the scripture has absolutely no condemnation. In fact, encourages medical treatment. So, you know, the, these people that, you know, try to act all intimidating, like they're somehow more spiritual because they don't go to a doctor. That's just a load of hogwash. And very often what it ends up being is a trick of our enemy, of Satan himself, that causes people in their pride to not go seek the medical treatment they in fact need. They end up in very dire uh, circumstances because of it. So treat him with the you know fig poultice and and uh, he he'll be made better. Now um, it says at that time uh, Merabak Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and pre a present to Hezekiah for he heard that he had been sick. And had recovered. So, a wonderful gift and a wonderful acknowledgement. Um, Merabek Baladan is um, not currently the world power, right? The Assyrians are currently the world power, but in time, Babylon is going to become the world power. And they're, they're at this point, they're 
of just a slightly lesser status than Assyria. Certainly, if they you know, tried to raise their prideful head, Assyria would chop it right off. Assyria is the force to be contended with on planet Earth at this time. But uh, Babylon is quick on the rise, and this seemingly insignificant little country and its king are now being acknowledged by an up-and-coming world power, Babylon and its king. So it's flattering, right? I mean, you know, if the governor uh, sends you a letter because you were sick and you got better and, you know, she says, hey, I heard you were sick and I'm so glad you're doing better now, um, that is kind of an honor to receive a letter from someone of authority. So uh, this is the idea here. Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasuries, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointments, and all his armory, all that was found amongst his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Now, if your heart, if you've not read this before, if your heart just sank right there, like, I don't know if that's a good idea. You're absolutely right. Okay, that that is a bad idea. You don't just take especially the ungodly and just say to them, "Let me show you everything that's of value to me." Okay, uh, thanks for the le- letter. Very flat. I'm so blessed that you, in your you know high place of authority, were well, thinking of me. Uh, uh, neat. Really appreciate it. But you don't just rip open the doors of the vault and say, check out all the stuff I've got. Really bad idea. Really bad idea to expose themselves this way. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, what do these men say and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, you can almost hear the naivety in his voice. They came to me from a far country. From Babel, they're a lot. They not even don't. They're not even our neighbors. They live a long ways off. Anybody remember that whole ordeal with the children of Israel, and they sign the agreement, and it ends up biting them once they're all done. And it comes from a far country. He said, "What have they seen in your house?" So Hezekiah answered, "They've seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among all my treasuries that I have not shown them." Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. And uh, it's important that we learn and know and remember that when that phrase is used, it's the Lord of armies. Okay, so this isn't the idea of the God who's created all things, the man in charge, the big guy upstairs. This is the idea of the Lord who is in command of the armies of heaven, the commander-in-chief, the general over his troops. It's, it's militant on every level that this response is coming. And it should cause Hezekiah to like swallow hard at this point. Like, oh man, uh, the Lord of hosts is now speaking to me. This is the message. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. 
nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, all of that ends up coming true. It's more than a hundred years away at this point in time, but it ends up coming true. And um, the one that is probably most well-known and most significant in our minds, hopefully in your mind, is Daniel. Daniel is a descendant of this man, and he is a very powerful prophet, as you well know. Uh, this is a prophetic confirmation that Daniel was, in most likelihood, uh, a eunuch also. They, they, uh, they would castrate the men that they used in uh, the king's palace for authority and as emissaries. Um, I don't mean to be callous about the description, but it caused them to be very focused on their jobs. They didn't have distractions <laughs> where they were thinking about other things, women. Homes, family, wives, you know, they, they, they were focused on what the king wanted. We know that Daniel functioned as an emissary for Babylon in captivity, taken captive, served under Nebuchadnezzar, remembering the interpretation of his dreams. And then by the end of his life, we see that at times he's actually receiving vision and receiving messages from the Lord when he is on official uh, business for Babylon in other countries. So, you know, this statement to Hezekiah should, I mean, if I heard that message right now, that my because of what I had done, the eventual outcome was going to be that my all of my possessions and property and my offspring would be taken captive and that my you know, grandsons or my great-grandsons would be made eunuchs in service to another king. I'd be heartbroken. I'd be overwhelmed with that message. That would be a, a thing of bitterness and terror. And instead, so Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. And then look at what his explanation is. For he said, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. Remember I told you to focus on what he said previously in his prayer, how he prayed and said that all of this was because he was considering his own peace. And then you come to this statement and he says, well, thank goodness none of that's going to take place in my life. That's really short-sighted. I think that there's a character flaw exposed here in, in a few of these elements. Announcements, you're going to be sick. Oh, poor me. Lord God, spare me. Okay, I'm going to spare you. Oh, hey, King of Babylon, look at all the stuff I've got. I've, me, mine, I've got over here. Have you seen my stuff? And, um, you know, bad things are going to happen to you because you just did all that. Well, thank goodness it's not going to happen to me in my lifetime. There's something to say about a man who is so profoundly used by God to bring reformation to the people in his care, and yet 
His focus is still himself. Samson was powerfully used by the Lord in the book of Judges as a judge over Israel. And yet, every single thing he did throughout his life was motivated by self. All the way through. Even, even his last act as he killed himself, right? He pulls down the pillars in the center of the Philistines' temple of worship and it collapses and kills all of those Philistine lords. It's the greatest victory he had in his entire life. He makes the statement as he goes to prayer and asks the young servant boy to put his hands on the center pillars there as he's about to destroy the temple and all of the Philistine lords that are there. He says, God, let me do this last great act because of what they did to my eyes. He's not even concentrated on, Lord, because they've defamed your name. Lord, because they've been so injurious and murderous toward our people. Lord, because of all of these other... His whole motivation is, God, let me get them for what they've done to me. It's a really dangerous thing to have a relationship with the Lord, to be in service to the Lord, and have your motivation still be self. It can, it can destroy a lot of things in the process. Sometimes we have to learn painful lessons from the examples God gives us, like Hezekiah and Samson. So take it to heart. Let the Lord minister to you and build His desires and will in your life and your conduct. We'll stand and we'll pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your love and your graciousness in our lives. And I ask that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, I have to admit, I think every one of us has to admit, we have that selfishness about ourselves. Lift us up out of that. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to be others-centered. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.